What's up, bitches? I'm Gaia. And I'm Nita. And this is Bitch Why. Our podcast where we talk about all the things we like and dislike and why anyone would make them. We are just simply two artsy bitches learning what makes art good and how how we want to talk about it, how we want the yes. world to talk about it. Hello. Hello. Welcome to take two. Take two. Sorry that we missed a week. It's okay. We recorded, but it didn't work we out. We recorded an episode and then there was an issue with the recording, but we're back. And we're Can I tell you how many different free softwares from the internet that I downloaded to my computer in order to like go into GarageBand and find the file? Like <laughs> my computer is now riddled with oh, whatever man. was in those. Tell me, what are you snacking on? Dolly Parton. I sent Cam this. Dolly Parton, they were gonna like put up a statue of her somewhere, and she put like a like a a memo like Hey, this is, like, very sweet of y'all, but I don't feel like I need to be the person right now that gets put up on a literal pedestal. Maybe in a few years, but I'm a white lady, and I don't think y'all need to do this for me. Cool? Cool. So she just, like, they said that they were going to give her a statue, and then she's, like, denied. I love Dolly Parton. I have her vaccine. I love her! What? Miss Moderna. I have the vaccine. Oh, Moderna. Oh, I didn't know that. I have a piece of Dolly with me always. Oh my god, everyone on this Zoom call is vaccinated. Cam and I got Pfizer today. They keep pushing back our second vaccine date, which is a little bit... Weird. You know? That's weird. We're just gonna be okay with it. Yeah. I also watched the third to all the boys movie. The NYU propaganda must stop. We like NYU, we hate NYU, that's it. Yeah. That's all. I that's I was just like, why is every main character's dream college NYU? What did Andy Hamilton do to make that Stop happen? Stop giving Andy Hamilton rights. How much did he pay for that? How much? What did what did he sell to the devil? Have I told you that I've touched Andy Hamilton's hand? No. <laughs> why? <laughs> why? He did a photo op with me while I was moving in freshman year. My sister is also in the photo. They made a meme on NYU memes for slightly bankrupt teens or whatever. They got, like, in trouble on Twitter. Why? I don't know, but they don't have, like, they don't tweet anymore. Well, I was in one of their memes when I was a freshman. Andy Hamilton was like, I guess I'll shake hands with this little queer. He, like, seized me by the shoulders and I was so tired because I had been driving for, like, four days. I was like, I'm in New York. What did I do? (laughs) What are you snacking on? I'm glad you asked, because I know what the next thing we need to review is. Oh, no. It's the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Oh, yes, we have to. So my roommates and I, we have been making our way steadily through the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. We watched the first one, you know, fun little jaunt. We watched the second one. If they cut out the solid half hour of pure racism, it would be like a solid movie. I have no idea why we're not talking about the third Pirate of the Caribbean movie. The third Pirates of the Caribbean movie changed my life. It was so good. I've been thinking about it nonstop since I watched it. Me and my roommates, like, we walk around asking people who we work with. We're like, hey, have you guys seen Pirates of the Caribbean 3? And they're all like, we's like, no, or like, maybe. And we're like, why is nobody talking about Pirates of the Caribbean 3? Like, why is nobody engaged with this? Like, why, why is, like... Why has it left the cultural lexicon? Like Probably because Johnny Depp is, like, not a good person. So Johnny Depp sucks. However, yeah. there is a scene where Orlando Bloom tenderly kisses Kira Knightley's knee. I haven't seen these movies in a really long time. Okay, so I've, like, recently, like, like I've always known it was queer, but this is actually maybe subversive. I've recently found out that I'm attracted to men as well as women. 
Um, and the reason I didn't know that before is because I hadn't seen the first three Pirates of the Caribbean movie with Kira Knightley and Orlando Bloom making out all over the place. If I had seen those movies, I would have just come out as like straight queer from the get-go. <laughs> the last time you talked about them, you were like, I want them to hit me with their swords. And I do. Like, I, I want them, I don't want I them, want to, them to, to impale me. me. Like, I want them and to they may me. and they must. Oh, man. They're so pretty. You know, Kara Knightley was like 17 when they filmed the first one. Yeah. She was like, she was like 18. We've recently been learning all about her life. Um, anyway, she, yeah. they're both so pretty and I am so small and baby. And also like their relationship is like totally the type of relationship that would facilitate a third, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. There's like this weird shoehorned love triangle where they're like, yeah, maybe they're into Johnny Depp or maybe Kira Knightley's into Johnny Depp. And I'm like, mm-hmm. the, this is the kind of couple that would just invite him in. And probably have. And probably have. Like if they, yeah. they have hate fucked as a group. And I'm, I'm like aware of that and comfortable with that. Someone messaged me on Instagram a couple weeks ago. I've been meaning to message you back, by the way. I have it written in my planner. I just forgot to. <laughs> but they, they messaged me and they like said that they were really happy that I talked positively about polyamorous people on Bitch Why. Yeah. And oh, which episode was that? It was like so crazy. It was on our first Hunger Games episode and it was like just like a one off where I was like, yeah, people should have like more poly representation or something like that. And I must say that, like, I fully want to, like, embody that messaging. Like, why do we not have poly representation? There's this documentary that just came out on HBO um, that it's this couple that tries to be polyamorous and, like, bring in a third person. And then I think it ends up not working out. And then Ashley Ray, who's this really great TV critic, was like, is polyamorous and was like this is the worst like polyamorous representation ever it's just these two white people who like were probably bored of each other and like didn't know how to like deal with it there's not a lot of mainstream like warm poly acceptance from media and i just wish there was because i think polyamory would be a very reasonable and like delightful solution to a lot of relationships where people really still love and care about each other um and like want to be like romantically partnered but like might have other needs that aren't be met being met by their partners like Orlando Bloom is like I think in the same category as Daniel Radcliffe for me like I'm not very threatened by him I feel mm. like I could take him in a fight and that's really important to me you feel like you I... could take Orlando Bloom in a fight yes I feel like he's so nimble like I feel like he's he like... does seem very nimble but yeah. I do think I could take him in a fight okay He's my, I would bet on He's you. He's baby. I think I just contain more raw power than he does. Not not to say that I am, like, better than Orlando Bloom. Like, I'm not. I'm, like, worse than him in, like, most ways. <laughs> speaking of speaking raw of, power. Speaking of... Speaking of feeling threatened by... Speaking of feeling threatened by... Let's get into the roadmap. Let's get into the roadmap. <laughs> Welcome to Bitch Why. If you're new here, uh, welcome twice. This episode, as well as every episode we've ever made, except for the Taylor Swift episode, is made up of four parts. Bitch what? An introduction to what we are talking about. Just what it is. Looking at it. Bitch how? A technical rundown of how it succeeds and fails. That's when we take it and put our little fingies on it. 
bitch time, which is three minutes of our unintelligent, unthoughtful, just nothing take. That's where we smear it all over our face. And then finally, bitch why, where we cleanse ourselves from it. We talk about the implications. We, we do a face mask. We grow as people. And then the bitch meter, which is our little diversity score meter that we learned math just to give you. We pour it into a little cup and we sell it on eBay as thought slime. <laughs> anyway, it's time it's for bitch what? time for bitch what? Bitch, what the heck are we talking about? <laughs> what the heck are we talking about again? Uh, for the second time. For the second time. The Hunger Games prequel book. The Ballad of Song... The, the Ballad <laughs> of Songbird and... Song, the Ballad the- of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins. Madame New York University alum. MFA. Department of, of Dramatic, Dramatic Writing. Alum. MFA. Alum. <laughs> oh my god. How did we manage to be so unsynchronized? Like, we knew what the words were. Like, why? <laughs> like, how did you come across this? I don't know how I first came across it, but I do, like, the only thing that I find significant about how I came across it is that when I first heard about it, I was like, why is Suzanne Madame Suzanne? Why is she making a another Hunger Games book? Like, this is such a nice, like, little, like, bow of a series. I hate it when authors, like, write new books. I can think of this, and I can think of one other good example of, like, a book that was, like, independent of the original, like, writings that I think did a good job navigating it. But anyway, and then I heard it was about President Snow, and I was like, truly, like, this is your, this is your avenue. This is the person that you want to give us a glimpse into? Yeah. I think that's a lot of, like, what was being said on Tumblr at the time. So I don't know if that was just, like, those brain worms, like, like interacting with my brain worms and, like, producing worm offspring. But that's the main significant thing. I really went into it not, like, not expecting to enjoy it. And you'll see how I felt about it. How did you come across it? <laughs> okay, so this came out, Midnight Sun also came out in quarantine, which is a... Not a prequel, but, like, a revisiting, like, let's go back into Twilight, but from Edward's perspective, which, spoiler alert, I really enjoyed, but we'll talk about it. But I was like, what is up with this, like, villain origin story that, like, everyone is doing? It's happening, like, with Disney stuff. It's happening. It's just, like, why? Why? And then it felt, like, very, like, since the Hunger Games, the Ridge Tridge, um, was, like, very focused. Thanks was very focused on, like, what our, we live in a society, whatever. It felt like she was capitalizing on this kind of, like, Trumpian thing of, like, how do people get evil and, like, what happens. And, like, I had friends who were reading it when it came out, and I was like, I'm not, not gonna do it. And that's all. And yet here we are. And yet here we are. Reviewing it on our podcast. Reviewing it, and hopefully you all read it too. If you got this far and you haven't read this book, Go read this book. It's definitely, like, worth your time. Like, remember when we made the Mulan episode? Sorry to the newbies. And we were like, don't worry, don't watch it. We watched it. So you don't have to yeah. watch it. This is, like, the opposite of that. No, like, like read this. Like, read this book. Anyway. Shall I synopsize? Shall I... Synopsize away. I want a more elegant word, but simply no, no alternative. So last time I synopsized, it was, like, 30 minutes after I finished the book. But now it's been, now like, a week. Now we've had some distance. 
our brains are maybe the maybe our brain worms are like marinated maybe they're ready for grilling so the ballad of songbirds and snakes is like a hard prequel to the og hunger games series it takes place during the 10th hunger games and the it turns out the hunger games is super different from the hunger games we know and love of the the og series um because you know it hasn't quite gotten off the ground yet and so one of the things they're trying is they're offering up the capital children to be mentors to the hunger games tribute so it follows a young president snow he's baby mentors a girl from district 12 and might i say shenanigans ensue that was pretty spoiler free too like that's pretty spoiler free like we could actually maybe do this whole episode kind of spoiler free we could but i don't know i mean like you know what's gonna happen yeah exactly you know what happens it's a prequel like you know you know the end it's time for bit chow. It is. It's, it's time. time for bit chow. Let's talk about how it succeeds. I think what's very interesting is this deconstruction of reality TV and how it's created. And I talked to Mike Ronka, friend of the pod, Mike Ronka. He loves Survivor. That's his, like, area expert of expertise with um, reality TV. Mine is The Bachelor. Mine's MasterChef Australia. <laughs> Australia. Something that he, we, we discussed was, like, when Survivor first started out, it was very, like, the challenges were actually, like, pretty in line of, like, uh, like a survival scenario would be. It was like, oh, your friend got stuck in a tree because they, par- they were, like, parachuting down. They're stuck in a tree. You have to go build a ladder and, like, go get them. Like, pretty, pretty like, practical things. And now they're just, like, whole, like, courses of, like, wacky shit. Because, like, they started to abandon the, the like, whatever, the, the, like, original idea of the thing. And that also kind of happened on The Bachelor. Like, The Bachelor used to be, like, I'm just, I'm here to find love. And now it's, like, how are you going to get the girls to fight? Like, and, like, people really only care about, like, when the girls are fighting. Um, Is MasterChef the only true, pure reality TV show on the planet? possibly but the both of them have this kind of like splitting up with heroes and villains i mean survivor literally had like a season where they brought back all the old like quote-unquote heroes and they brought back all the old quote-unquote villains and i thought that that was like fascinating because like when you're reading the hunger games and also like even you could see the like baby versions of this in the in the like 10th hunger games in this prequel book the the slow sorting of that and like how you kind of automatically sort that because you're like oh Treach died so now Lucy Gray is like one more person closer to like surviving and like even like Snow has those thoughts but like this idea that we can dehumanize people in reality TV to the point where we're like like calling literal like humans heroes and villains is really fascinating to me and then also how like reality tv changes over the course of time to just lean into like what's the most dramatic thing like what's the most interesting thing and then we lose all essence of what it used to be anyway can you you had something to say yeah i was just gonna say that like segue is kind of really elegantly into my macro macro point about this book which maybe it's zooming out too soon but i think 
I'm just, we're just diving in. I think something that this book <laughs> encapsulated quite well that I think is quite absent from many conversations we have about privilege is I, I think a lot of conversations we have about privilege and oppression surround this idea that like oppression and systemic abuse comes from like this dark evil soul inside of bigoted people that's just hatred and it's mean and it's like not good and I think this is actually a kind of malicious idea because it individualizes the problem of racism and if you're if you're new to bitch why then welcome to the thing we talk about in every single episode systemic issues are systemic and when you individualize them it it simplifies the issue and it makes it unbeatable, but it is beatable. Um, and something that I think this book did really well was instead of having the people of the capital hate the people of the districts, it brought in this idea that the people of the capital don't hate the people in the districts. The people of the capital see the people of the districts as less than human. They don't think about them as people who like exist in the same world as them. They're just like little creatures that they like watch. Um, and I, I think that was really interesting that the, the thing that Snow couldn't overcome was not like some deep seated, like, I don't like Lucy Gray. I'm, I hate the people of the districts, although he did. It was this idea that the people of the districts were just not people. And it, it was imbued into so many different things within this book. It felt like the thesis statement of it. It was like, the way that they treat the people from the districts, having them in cages and being like put in the zoo. In a zoo, and they're treated by a by a veterinarian. They're treated by a veterinarian doctor. instead of a doctor. There's this dog quote which Nita and I both highlighted and then and sent, sent to, each, to other. each other. It's uh, <laughs> the like host person is asking this girl like, "Oh, he threw himself in front of you. He's so loyal, like a dog or something, like a really good dog." And she's like, "No, not like a dog, like a human being." But what's interesting is you also see the kids of the capital. Maybe I mean, obviously, they never get to a point where they're like, "Oh, you're a real human being who contains multitudes, and I don't hate you anymore, whatever." But you have moments. Well, because the thing is, all the kids are all the kids of the capital who like are prominent children of or children of prominent figure heads like I'll get paired up with a district person to like mentor and they all kind of have moments where they're like Ugh, like mm, maybe we shouldn't be doing this but then you have like Dr. Gall which is a great name who she like comes in does something evil she like kills an animal says some weird shit to snow and then like leaves um in like every scene but she's always like you see, like, how evil people can be because we put them in this situation, but you're the ones putting them in that situation. And it reminds me of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yeah. Where Dr. Lombardo, he was like, so I created a prison simulation, and I didn't tell them that at any point they could leave, which actually apparently they could, but he didn't tell the kids that. And, and, like, what he created was actually more in line with, like, a concentration camp than, like, a prison. And he was like, look, I made a prison and I told all the guards to be awful. And look, everyone's being awful. I mean, it's a terrible experiment. It shouldn't be taught in, like, psychology classes. It often is because it ha just has a good story. 
but he continues to use it as like a talking point for how evil people can become when he's like the mastermind behind all of the evil things. Yeah, th- this is something that often frustrates me when I'm having conversations with white men is a lot of times like white men, when they talk to me about things, they're like, Gaia, you're <laughs> such you're such an optimist. Like, why do you think humanity is why why would you imagine humanity to have any good with it like all of these things you're saying just rely on people being good and they're just not good people are bad and they're just so awful when they're left to their own devices they kill each other and i'm like well people aren't being left to their own devices and killing each other people in horrible extenuating circumstances that lead them to make choices that they don't like making kill each other this isn't Like, a lot of times, like, people are like, oh, serial killers, like, there's evil in this world. But I'm a big true crime fan, and every time I hear about the life of a serial killer, I'm like, yeah, of course that person became a serial killer. There are so many points in their lives where, like, like Jeffrey Dahmer, there's so many moments where, like, someone could have intervened. You put people in situations that necessitate they lose parts of their humanity or their empathy or compassion where they learn not to trust people or they learn to feel distant from people you put them in these situations and then you're like why is the world so awful that it creates evil people and the answer is just so clearly that one quote from the new jim crow which is virtually no one commits violence without violence first being committed onto them and i think that was a little bit of a paraphrase but i quote this close enough the absurdity of the idea that people are inherently evil because look what happens when they're put into horrible situations is so well expressed in this book and it's expressed in a way that I was having trouble articulating it was because it was literally people forcing children to kill each other by saying that they're going to kill them or their families if they don't do otherwise the only chance at survival is if they try to kill each other being like look at how awful these kids are for trying to kill each other this must be how humanity is and i think this book manages to point out that absurdity in a really amazing way and it's so well applicable to the world we live in like a lot of people are like well prison is hell because it's like filled with bad people and they're all awful and they make prison hell but then you're like well if you put a bunch of people in like horrible living conditions where they're constantly being abused by the people who have more power than them and they've grown up in horrible living situations where they're continually disenfranchised and marginalized and they have no reason to trust authority or Um, even people who claim that they're trying to help them, why on earth would they live in a situation that feels kind? There's no context for it. Right, but then, and also, like, with the guards, what, like, Phil Lombardo did was, like, there were the kids pretending to be guards were, like, being pretty nice to the prisoners because they were like, I don't know, I'm going to pay for my, these $300 are going to pay for, like, a nice dinner with my girlfriend. And then Phil Lombardo, like, pulls him aside and is like, hey, can you uh, act a little more like a guard? Right? And then, like, they have a specific idea of what a guard is versus... And then also then, like, when guards are, like, hired, they come into an environment that's already been established and then they assimilate. Like, we're putting these people in these situations. This isn't how humans act of their own volition. Because if humans were able to act of their own volition, they wouldn't do this. 
it's just very well encapsulated in this story, which one of the like central questions in this story that Coriolanus Snow, Coriolanus, Coriolanus, Glory Hole Anus, Glory Hole Anus. Oh, one one of the like continual questions that uh, what's his name, Corio, is what they call him. It's that's what his Where close his friends close call him. Friends call and him. as a close friend of him, I can I'm allowed to say it. Yikes. The question he's constantly grappling with is like, are people good? Are people bad? Uh, and the thing he ultimately comes to is he like, ah, people must be bad. He's like, the only way to cure the evil of our society is to keep people under strict control and instill fear in them. And that is the ironic cyclicism of cruelty. You commit cruelty. You see people react accordingly. You imagine those people to be cruel. You put systems of cruelty in place to keep them from being cruel. They react to those systems. And things eternally rotate like a wheel and it's pretty bad and i think this book did a really good job of expressing it i also noticed something just now because i've been listening to jeopardy all day and there was a question in it about like early european history and um the gauls were the group that it's what the roman called the british before the british became britain it was like that's what they used to call them and the fact that her name is dr gall she is literally Britain before it became Britain. Like she is the colonizer before it's like fully so involved into a colonizer. Fully created. That's fascinating. Suzanne, me. like, was was that on purpose? Oh, I'm sure all these names are like on purpose. Like Coriolanus to use a very Shakespearean name for a very Shakespearean tragedy sort of story is also very smart. I mean, like, the whole time I felt myself like rooting for him in the most convoluted way because I just wanted him to like not fall down into this like path I knew that he was it was very Macbeth it was very like Hamlet like you just know like these things are going to happen and there's nothing you can do to stop it and a lot of the reviews of this book felt that he just kind of comes off as like a flat sociopath which I mean you read it and you're like this child is a sociopath but it's like they're coming after this like nature versus nurture like how much of a person is innate and how much is formed and they're like that's boring (laughs) and like the original Hunger Games books were more morally ambiguous um and the pacing was ruthless and I missed the 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 adrenaline of the Hunger Games but my question to that is like why do you want the adrenaline of the Hunger Games? Because in order to, like, want that, that means you're, you're, ex- you're like, in some way, unfortunately, you're, like, waiting for children to kill each other, which is then, like, if you don't at least take note of why you miss the adrenaline rush of the Battle Royale, like, what, like, do you, do you understand that, like, you're a part of, like, the yeah. capital, like, the, the quote-unquote capital, like, in this moment? This was a conversation me and my roommate had pretty immediately after I read the book, which I was talking about how in, this book breaks down the viewing of the Hunger Games, I think, into a more clear-cut, like, how could people watch this? This is so awful. Um, and I think it forces you to be like, oh, yeah, the Hunger Games are just bad and like I can't enjoy it because there's just nothing fun or exciting about watching this it's awful and so I was Mm -hmm. talking about this and I was talking about how I think that the most interesting thing to come out of the Hunger Games was that people who consumed it 
treated the people in the books the way the people in the capital treated the people in the books. And Mm -hmm. she was like, I have a friend who loves the Hunger Games, like, as an aesthetic piece of media. She loves to create different, like, Hunger Games scenarios and how she would survive them. And she was like, how do you, like, respond to someone who who enjoys this as, like, purely an aesthetic experience of book? And I ask myself this question a lot. So, like, this is partially a question that I'm posing to you as well as, like, an answer that I gave, which is, like, like, famously, I am such a buzzkill when it comes to enjoying media. Like, people talk about things they like, and I'm like, wow, have you ever thought about this about it? And they're like, Gaia, shut up. I do that, too. My family Um, gets so upset at me. That's why we started a podcast about it. That's why we started a podcast where we can be buzzkills in peace. But what what I said, I was like, if your favorite thing about the Hunger Games is the Hunger Games, then that's just an opportunity to, like, step back and be like, why is it that this is what I got out of this? Like, Mm -hmm. what does this mean about my understanding of the world? Like, what themes am I getting out of books? What things in media are, like, entering my construction of the world without me noticing them? And that's, I think this book really broke that down to, it broke it down to its bare essentials, which is this idea of, like, this isn't something that's fun to watch. It's shitty. It's this crazy thing that was invented by, like, some drunk white guys, and it's absurd that it exists. Like the Electoral College. Like the Electoral Literally, the Electoral College is a thing we think is, like, sacred, but literally it was created by, like, a bunch of drunk guys after they gained independence, and they're like, this is a placeholder, we'll put a pin in it, we'll come back to it in 20 years, and they just never did. Which is, like, there's just 18-year-olds coming up with Hunger Games ideas, and then those have just become sacred in this, like, world. Yeah. So I guess, like, my question for you, and I think we should probably address this in Bitch Why rather than right now, but, like, mm. and it's, I guess, like, the question of our podcast, so maybe it's dangerous to be, like, we should try and answer it in this episode, or, like, talk about it overtly in this episode, but, like, how mm. do you engage with media for both the aesthetic experience of it as well as the underpinnings of it how do you engage with the 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 mat the themes that enter your brain without you noticing as well as the pure ecstasy of fun media okay i actually have an answer maybe oh my goodness you listen to bitch why is the answer um (laughs) my thing that i really latched onto you really latched onto the sejanus Coriolanus relationship and I really latched on to the Lucy Gray Coriolanus relationship because something we talked about two weeks ago with Twilight was like the media loves a toxic we love toxic romance we just do like it's in every it's everywhere we talked about that with Twilight we will continue to talk about it with Twilight and and something that that we we talked about was like how actually can we create a relationship where people don't uh, engage in toxic behavior and then like that's the thing that we gravitate towards it's gonna take forever um there's a quote in the book that lucy gray says that what's more important than love is trust right yes and wow and you, this and was you, my like, big takeaway from this book. and but my but my thing is but my thing is like so you're reading the book it's all from snow's perspective it's not in first person though it's in third um so you're like watching him have all these thoughts and you're getting, like, lost in the moments where there is genuine human connection. And then immediate, almost immediately afterwards, like, he and Lucy Gray will not be in the same room together and he'll be talking to somebody else about Lucy Gray. Or he'll have a thought about her that's, like, incredibly possessive. 
And it's, like, explicit possessiveness. It's not like in Twilight where you're like, oh, it could be, it couldn't be. It's not like in, like, Pride and Prejudice where it's like, oh, they're better now. Like, it's like he has dehumanized her and every person in the district to a point where, like, he cannot see her as a human. Like, if humanness is in the middle, he sees her as an animal. And then at the very end of the books, he puts her on this, like, pedestal, like, she, like, as he's, like, living as a peacekeeper and, like, living with her. He sees her as, like, this, like, goddess of, like, music and song and whatever. But there's never a point. He goes straight from one to the other. He can't. And, like, the point of it is that he can't ever get to the place where he sees her as human. Just like he can't ever get to a place where he sees the Mockingjays as, like, worthy of existence um, because they are something that, that can never be controlled. And then because Lucy Gray is another thing in his head that can never be controlled, she has to go away. And so in the end, I don't really know what happens to her. I don't know if she dies. I don't know if she just, like, ran away. I don't know. But the way he... The thing he says about her is he... He's glad that the Hunger Games, like, that ver that game was deleted from, like, the records. He's like, it's just one more way to eliminate Lucy Gray from the world. The capital would forget her. The districts barely knew her. And District 12 would never, would, never, would never have accepted her as their own. In a few years, there would be a vague memory that a girl had once sung in the arena. And then that would be forgotten, too. And it's like, the book does that. The book, the book makes you go, oh, they're so cute. Like, I hope they make it out together. And like, you see Snow, like, like, maybe genuinely like falling in love or what he thinks is love. It's more of like a fiery passion thing. It's the Bridgerton, I burn for you thing. And it's not trust. And the book tells you it's not trust. And you get to experience the highs of the Hunger Games. I mean, there's parts where I was reading this book and, like, when they put Snow in the arena for a second, and I'm like, oh, like, he's gonna kill, like, the kids are gonna kill him. Your, your, your adrenaline is pumping, but then immediately after that, Snow is like, oh my god, I was fully capable of doing the same thing that we're making these kids do. And he actually maybe almost has a come to Jesus moment. He almost got it. Almost. He almost got it, where he's like, oh, I was not capable of this until I was put into this exact specific situation that is, like, carefully curated to make me behave this way. And so it does the same thing with the love with the love story. And then by the end, you're like, well, fucking course, I don't want them to be together. But it takes that that idea that idea of burning for someone the the obsessive, possessive, like toxic romance that's so prevalent in everything, and it fully like makes you look at it. I don't know how you can read this book and not see that. Um, I'm sure you can read The Hunger Games and Twilight and not see it, but I think that this book does it very artfully in a way that, like, lets you experience it, but then also makes you, like, sit back because because Snow is also, he's also, like, having those thoughts. He just never gets to the end of them, and hopefully you do. Not to be, like, every, every ten minutes in this episode I say, this is the real most important theme <laughs> of this book. And I actually don't think this is the most important theme. I think it's just a fun sub-theme. But I think the idea that trust is more important than love is like a cultural reset. That is so... <laughs> yeah. Like driver's license, it's a cultural reset. Okay, driver's license and love is more... Trust is more important than love. They go hand in hand, though, because, like, driver's license is all about, like, her being like, ah, I love and respect you and I miss you, even though I know we don't need to be together and even though I still love you, this isn't what needs to be happening right now. And I understand that, even though I care about you. I am this able to separate like my love from my care about you. This is, like, the driver's license of books. This is... <laughs> the driver's license of books but like driver's license said 
I am able to profoundly care about someone who I was once in love with. And that's more important than the fact that we were in love with each other, even though I'm still in love with you and I don't know how to deal with that. Uh, what the fuck? What business did she have? Sorry, this is a driver's license stand podcast. How did she podcast. do that? How did she how do did that? She She's do like that? 16. Queen She's though. 17. Um, but like regardless, I think that this is where we need to go with media. And I actually think this kind of ties in well to our conversation earlier about polyamory and how like people think polyamorous people are cheaters and whatever. It's I think that one of the most insidious things that cis heteronormativity has given us in terms of relationships is this idea of like love being something that burns inside of you, love being something that's consuming and fiery. And if love isn't consuming and fiery and passionate, then it's meaningless and it's settling and it's bad. But like maybe the real love was the trust we found along, found the, along way. the way. Like, I'm just thinking about the song Back to December because I recently oh found out God. it's about Taylor Lautner. <laughs> that song is about Taylor Lautner. Well, the, the whole, like, thesis of that song is, like, I wanted to have, like, fiery burning love, but I had someone who cared about me in a real way right in front of me, and I, like, let that go. Um, mm. And I don't know, just, like, we, we, but where are the relationships that are like that in media? Like, where are we seeing people who are maybe in love or maybe in like or whatever, but they trust each other and they want to build a life together and that matters more than whatever, like, romantic notions of what love is. is Like, mm-hmm. because love is so much more than, like, having sex with someone or feeling butterflies when you see them. Because at a certain point, you know, you've had sex with the same person for a while. You've seen the same person a billion times. Like, it's not going to be the same for your whole life. But some things matter more than that. And this book said that. It articulated it. And I think, for one, that that is hot. I think my kink is books articulating things. Well, I think we've had baby versions of that idea that never, like, go farther than, like, The Graduate or, like, 500 Days of Summer of, like, they finally got the thing and the thing that they were chasing was the pursuit. And, like, the pursuit was the most interesting part. The passion was the most interesting part. And then they're sitting there. They want is this? It's, like, 500 Days of Snow, 500 Days of Winter, Mm -hmm. whatever. Manic Pixie District Girl. I put that in my notes and I just wanted to say it at one point. But she's a Manic Pixie District Girl. But she is. So I'm not going to advocate for arranged marriages on this podcast. My parents were arranged, kind of, and I would not recommend it. However, there is this, like, phenomenon that I read an article about, about this, this one Indian woman and this one Indian family, and she graduated college, she had her own life, whatever, she came back home to visit her parents, and they were acting like high school sweethearts. Like, they were, like, all over each other, like, in a, in, the, in a way she'd never seen them before. And she started to, to discover that there was this kind of phenomenon of, like, all these, like, Indian couples who, like, were arranged, were, were, put, were put together um, out of, like, convenience, and then through building a life together, developed a sense of love and trust that then when the kids were out of the house and they were retired and they're, like, all the things they built were done, they had this, like, fiery passion of, like, teenagers. Um, and still had the, the foundation of trust that I think sometimes 
And I don't think that this happens with every Indian couple. I just thought that it was interesting that, like, their priorities in that relationship was trust and life building and, like, partnership more so than it was fire and passion and sex, which tends to be, like, the Western idea of, like, oh my god, we're so in love and, like, we will always be so in love. And then the second we fall out of, quote-unquote, out of love the sex is bad, whatever, like, we don't care about each other enough anymore, but really, like, what it is is it's all those other things that you have to continue to work on that some couples are just primed to do and some are not, and I think the way Western media primes us to believe what love is and what trust is, is, is all of that, that, like, stuff that very easily ebbs and flows, and we don't understand what to do when it ebbs, I mean, like, the very notion of something like The Bachelor or, like, Tinder is this idea of, like, what you need is love and nothing else matters besides that. Like, Mm -hmm. if you can find a spark with someone, then that spark is it. That's everything. But then you can see from The Bachelor, though, that, like, all those couples have broken up. They have, like, a one person. I did the math one time. They have, like, a 0.3%. Uh, success rate us famously doing math and and some of that spark is from circumstance like they get to yeah. go on these crazy dates in like paris and and like singapore like they get to go all over the world so of course you think you're in love with someone while you're watching fireworks on top of the eiffel tower and then when you like live together and you like have a baby or whatever or like planning whatever stuff you're like oh you're more boring than i remember <laughs> I feel like I can find a spark in everyone. Like, there's Mm -hmm. something that's attractive about, like, every single human on the planet. There's something to love in every single person on the planet. And I actually think that's kind of what happens between Lucy Gray and Coriolanus Snow. Yeah, I just didn't want to try and say it, you know? All right. Lucy seeing someone and being like, what can I love about this person? And Snow seeing someone and being like, what can I love about person and about this person? And that spark turns into a spark. And, and so interestingly enough, like that seems like the kind of thing that would matter. But the thing that actually matters in their relationship is that spark sparks and they can do it. And so what actually matters about their relationship is what is a relationship? What is the thing that will like carry me through my life what matters to me what are my values and i just think that's sexy i think it's sexy i think it's a sexy thing to be articulated by this book which didn't have to go so hard on that like they could have pretty easily gotten away with not really engaging with that that much but they suzanne said that every single one of my themes is going to be clearly thought out i am not making choices by accident i'm not doing something out of convenience and this is actually something that i've been really kind of trying to apply to my own writing is reading old work and being like do i love this scene does this scene have a purpose does this scene clearly articulate what i'm trying to articulate like suzanne just has such a great grasp of is this the most concentrated, the most perfect version of what I'm trying to say. And this book feels like the most concentrated, most perfect version of what she's trying to say. And it feels yeah. like such a great cap onto the Hunger Games, which we've already we've already gushed about the Hunger Games. We we've been new. This paired with the Hunger Games is fabulous. It makes me want to reread the Hunger Games. It's such a clear articulation of the Hunger Games themes. 
it well, shows her growth Arnie as a writer. Well, read them and said that this writing in the prequel is much tighter. I think Suzanne, Madame Collins, has really, like, justified going back and creating this companion piece because she had more to say and said it really well. I, think I feel like bitch time. that's, yeah, I, that was a segue if I've ever heard one. ready uh it's bitch time this is the nonsense time yay no sense okay go i i i'm still thinking about driver's license i'm not gonna lie like is this a driver's <laughs> <laughs> uh, where does she get those skirts the big skirts where she put, put, puts all the stuff in her skirts yeah with the How big she pockets she was like they went berry picking and she put berries in there and then a loaf of bread and then all this shit and i'm like where are you getting these skirts like like, queen I'm, of having pockets. Queen, queen of, of having putting pockets. things in her pockets. Like, um, Coriolanus doesn't know how songwriting works. No, he's so stupid. He doesn't understand embellishment and, like, he how... He doesn't understand metaphor, like, king, metaphor. like... Well, just not even, like, metaphor, just, like, the basics of, like, figurative language. No, like, king like, did not like, take, like, a fifth grade... English class? The poetry class. Like, he gets so upset whenever she sings a song that's not about him. And it's like, bro, she just met you. And she's been singing songs for forever. So, like, forgive her if she wanted to sing an oldie. Like, what's going on? Like, he's so wild. Um, That funky little guy just simply doesn't get so much. He doesn't understand so many things. Oh, um, the part where he's walking in the scene with Sejanus and then he gets so tired that he thinks he's not in love anymore. He's like trying to find Lucy Gray. It's so silly that <laughs> Coriolanus Snow. He's like, oh yeah, Sejanus and I were super buff and like we we were like better at the military training than any of these other dudes in the military training thing. But like he like goes on a hike and he's like, this is it for me. He goes on a hike to find Lucy Gray's house and then gets so tired that he's like Oh, you know what? I guess it's not worth it. Uh, I'm tired. Uh, maybe I'm not as in love as I thought I was. It's just like silly. It's so silly. Uh, but do you, do you? I don't know. I feel like I know people like that where I'm like, ooh, could you make it outside of the city? Could you leave New York safely? I just want to hear all the songs. Yeah. I want to hear all the songs. Oh, um... I remember what I thought of earlier. Suzanne Collins, I dare you to make a book written in second person. Like, (laughs) I dare you to rewrite this book, but in second person. I dare you. Oh my god, the Hanging Tree origin story. Sexy. Like, the origin story of the Hanging Tree and, like, the way Snow, like, went 60 years without hearing that song and then got, and then heard it at the end of the Hanging Tree. Like, that's intense. Um... Grandmam sounds like a name. It sounds like when people call their grandparents like Mima and shit. Yeah, it does. It does. Okay, well, it's time for bitch. Why? Did you think about my question? I kind of answered it, didn't I? You kind of did. Yeah. So I think I said more that like the right piece of media will let you do both because i'm the worst i watch the crown and i wait for them to say some really colonizer shit but i watch my parents watch the crown and they just are like oh 
the queen got the thing she wanted. And I'm like, why do you want the queen to get the thing she wanted? I guess like a challenge that I'm having when I talk about like I'm critic, I'm critically examining Bridgerton. I'm critically examining yeah. it. I'm critically examining High School Musical. And people right. are like, those are things that you watch to, to turn the brain no. off. Thoughts Critically empty. examining it is not an exercise to indulge in. But here's the thing. Your brain is never off. Exactly. So I'm always, my like, my comeback is always like, your brain is never off. You're always getting the messaging. The messaging is always there and it affects you in ways you don't know. You're never free from the biases of the people who make the art you consume. You right. just don't know about it. It's in there but you don't know about it. That's where the worms come from. You thought right. that the worms, you grew them yourself. They, you, they're they parasites. Watch Parasite Directed by Bong Joon-ho. Joon Sorry, I realized that my two favorite directors in the world are Bong Joon-ho and Kenny Ortega. And that that's all. That is that's so on brand. I, to say. Um, I think that even understanding why Suzanne went back and made this book, why would she do that? The answer is... It's a response to how people did maybe didn't get the Hunger Games the first time because of the way the movies were made. And if you want to know how we feel about how the movies were portrayed, go listen to that episode. People treated the Hunger Games movies like the way the Capitol treats the Hunger Games with the Team PETA, Team Gale stuff, with this like Capitol Couture line of fashion and like cover girl eyeshadow hunger games lines like we did we were the capital and i think this book makes you literally take the persona of a capital person you're reading it from there i mean the probably the worst capital person and i think there's no way to read this book without understanding that like you as a human being in, if you have the means to buy, like, to purchase this book and comfortably sit down and read it, you are probably closer to the capital people than you are the districts. It's the smartest, most self-referential piece of media I've read in a long time. And I don't know, I think, like, I think media literacy and, and being able to look at things not as black and white, but as, like, a gray area. Like, the Marie Antoinette thing. Both things can be true. That Marie Antoinette can have, like, done all those awful things because she was part of a monarchy. And then also that, like, the last six months of her life were pretty shitty and maybe no human deserves that kind of treatment. That, like... To quote Max Mooney, you can close the curtains but still want people to come in. Wow, Max Mooney is so smart. Um, so smart. I love that So man. smart. I don't think he listens to this, but, like... No, Max May likes all of our Instagram posts and responds on our... He's, like, always, like, waiting for this one. I think Max Mooney listens. Aw, Max Mooney. Yeah, very sweet. Anyway. Anyway. I guess I'm just trying to cope with being a media buzzkill. I don't think you have to. I think more people... I mean, I guess it's weird for us to be, like, more people should media literate I, I feel like you and I continue to kind of give the tools towards some form of media literacy without being mean <laughs> and more so just being like hey so glad you could watch Bridgerton it's fun it's dumb fun to watch but have you thought about and it's not like you're a bad person 
for liking Bridgerton. You're you're not a bad person. I'm not a bad person because I fucking love Twilight. Both things can be true, that I love Twilight and that Twilight has a lot of problematic things in it. I think people are are looking for an uncancelable, unproblematic thing that doesn't exist. People have issues with like, Jeremy O'Harris. And Jeremy O'Harris is like doing a lot right, but it's okay to critique the things that he might not be doing well. The irony of the discourse in like theater communities being like, is Jeremy O'Harris good? Right. When like show a white person slave play challenge. Yeah, but like the, I think the thing is like, no one's no one's the morally pure creator that you wish they were. And to put anyone on that pedestal, like Lucy Gray where she goes from nothing to everything. It's not fair to any piece of media or person or persona or celebrity or whatever to to expect that level of perfection. I mean, like, look at what how Britney Spears was treated. Like, it's like, there's gonna be problems with everything. Our job is to decipher what is, like, fully unforgivable and what can we watch and then, like, understand for ourselves that, like, we can reckon with it up here. I pointed to my noggin. Big <laughs> this brain. Is, this is not a visual medium. I think Suzanne Collins and Rick Riordan have both done a very good job of not falling into, like, celebrity. And Suzanne Collins is not, like, capitalizing on her work. She's not like, I want to be in the Hunger Games movies. I want to do that. Like, she's very, like, good at walking the walk of the things she made. In particular, Rick Riordan does a great job of, like... He's made mistakes when it comes to representation and he's done some really amazing things when it comes to representation. But like the thing that's always most important to him is that representation happens. And you can see the evolution of that in his writing where like tune into our Percy Jackson episode coming pretty soon. In his earlier books, he's like, I made this for my kid who needed representation. And then his later books are like, oh, a lot of people saw these characters and thought they were queer. And so I want that that to be. And he's like, oh, well, I don't know if I'm always the best person to write these stories. Maybe I should hire some people and give them my platform by, like, ex- expanding their voices. Um, Read through- Aru Shah in the End of Time, which is a very cute Percy Jackson, but Indian. The, the point is, is, like, Rick Riordan has done a great job of, like, evolving with the media he creates and, like, with our lands- our cultural landscape surrounding, like, what does it mean to make things? The only other important synthesis I have about this is that this book is very good at fleshing out its own, like, worldview on, and, like, social and political and economic dynamics. It's so well-crafted. Please go read it. Pulls no punches. Uh, it's fun to read. The other thing we talked about um, last time that got cut was um, Lucy Gray's crafting this, like, likable persona as a survival tactic yes how do we forget about that well i mentioned like how it's interesting that like lucy gray as one person crafted this likable persona because it's the only way she knew to survive in this because she's not strong and huge she like this was her only thing and then it's and then in the 75th hunger games it's gotten to a point where like everybody's expected to create a likable something persona so that people will give them money and food and whatever as marginalized people we sometimes have to create a likable persona as a survival tactic like you literally have to be more palatable to people who Mm -hmm. um are in a position to hurt you so that you don't get hurt and the other and the other thing that i've just been thinking about this week 
is, like, there are a lot of kids on TikTok who, like, do, like, imagine you're in, like, the Gen Z revolution, whatever. Like, they, they were, have you seen these? They, like, craft, like, incredibly elaborate revolution ideas and then, like, dress up in, like, their, like, what they would wear to bite the government or something. Aww. It's, like, cute. Like, they're so silly. But, like, you don't need to imagine some wild scenario about the government killing its people because all they have to do is shut off your water and power. And, like, I know that Hunger Games has become a shorthand for any time there's, like, a competition for resources. I mean, even, like, when the fire Festival happened, they were like, oh my god, like, these rich kids are, like, being forced to partake in a Hunger Games situation. There are many Hunger Games happening all over the world all the in time. In Flint, Michigan. It's everywhere. It's in Texas right if now. If you want to go to a Hunger Games situation, come to Terre Haute, Indiana, home of the federal death row. Oh my god. Yeah. Literally, yeah. And like, and like the ways in which this Hunger Games was arbitrarily created, like the Electoral College, it's just the decisions of like, Something that would benefit one very powerful white man and then, like, predominantly minority groups spend their whole lives combating, like, that one decision. Yep. Yep. I think it's time for math. I think it is time for math. Anyway, it's time for the beach meter where we rank the thing on We do math to make it a number. Amazing. What do we give it for queer? We gave it a one. Um, Lucy Gray has ambiguously gay cousin-sister affiliate. Yeah. Yeah, her aunt is like, everyone get out of the house so I can fuck my girlfriend. And that's so, tea. So she's gay. Um, for gender, we gave it a four out of five. It's pretty, like, evenly split. The, like second protagonist is a woman we liked that the villain was a woman woman. but not in a sexy way and not in a queer coded way it's very nice um what did we give it for race for race we gave it a two um lucy gray is pretty clearly coded to be romani or at least some non-white she's just not white long thick dark hair and is all she's got dark skin she's probably also related to katniss so if Katniss it's counts heavily as a implied, colored, yeah, like I don't know if you can't see that, like a lot of the people from the districts are coded as characters of color, then perhaps update your reading comprehension skills. Like, like look at the adjectives and think about what they mean. <laughs> Everyone fan casting Lucy Gray keeps fan casting like white women with pink undertones, and it's like, stop! Did you read the book? Did you read the book? Read it again. The The problem with, like, people saying that, like, that the, like, olive undertones thing is that people, like, like I have olive undertones and, like, you have olive undertones and, like, right. I'm white and you're not. And people are like, <laughs> well, you don't have to be not white to have olive undertones, but, like, just read the context. Read the whole fucking sentence. I think the racial bitch. dynamics of this are important. By encoding non-white characteristics onto a character, first of all, that makes them not white. Like, just, like, literally, again, like, read the adjectives, understand what they mean. Adjectives. That's all. That's all. It just, please, she's a person of color. Like, let me have this. Uh, <laughs> for disability, we gave it an NA because uh, no one survives long enough to be partially disabled. For body positivity, we gave it an NA because it's a book medium. Like, there's, there's not, not really, actually a lot. They don't really explain 
They don't really go into body types. But also, movie makers cast fat people 2021 challenge. For class, we gave it a five because listen to the rest of the episode if you want to know why. I don't know why. I don't know how you would get through this and then be like, why did they give it a five? And that gives us a final score of drumroll, please. But, um, six out of ten on the bitch meter. It was pretty fucking good. It was very good. It's pretty good. Amazing. It's time for Harris's hot take. Hello, Hello, Harris. Hi. Can we get your hot take on the ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, a Hunger Games prequel? That shit slaps. Yes. And uh, uh, it's like the YA American Psycho. I love it. <gasps> YA American it. Psycho. That's so good. It's so good. And I was seeing all these reviews online about how how Stephanie, not Stephanie Myers. Oh my God, Susan Collins. <laughs> Like, should it be allowed to go deep into morality? And I'm like, what the fuck? That's what I, I said. Everyone's like just saying, oh, it's the nature versus nurture thing. Ha 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 ha. Like, it's, I don't. It's what? Yeah, it, it was. was not, it was like a really interesting character study about Very... a really complicated person. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like, wasn't a good person, but we still read American Psycho. Like, it's good work. Yeah. I thought it was lovely. Oh my God. And like, I. I I think she took like the hard, the hard path. She could have written a, a book, and it would it, it could have just been about a different Hunger Games. But she chose to choose something that would be like a little more uh, risky, and I love that. That's so sexy. All right, I love you. I love you too. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Yeah, you always know that an episode's going to be good when Harris, in his hot take, says all the things we say during the episode. So it's his hot take is just a reiteration of the episode. I love that for when him. When we are and in complete Harris. alignment. What are we working on? <laughs> I'm on a farm. I've, I'm working I've on a farm. I literally shoveled alpaca shit earlier. Um, they taught me how to spin wool into yarn the other day. Oh. Yeah, I now have that skill, kind of. It was low-key, like, one of the hardest tasks I've ever, like, learned how to do, and I don't fully understand it. I'm also weaving a scarf. A lot of my art projects right now are physical, but I also wrote the first draft of my play and got some feedback on it very recently. So, not first draft, first 10 pages. So, I've officially put hand to keyboard. What are you working on? Uh, there's this, like, TV writing mentorship for people of color that I'm submitting to, and I still haven't written the pilot, but it's all in my head. I have yet to put hand to keyboard. Like, it's sitting here. All the dialogue is in my noggin. All the dialogue is in there. Character descriptions. Everything's sitting in my brain. And yet, it's not submittable yet. So, uh, wish me luck, please. Manifest for me. Yeah, that's what I'm. All right, that's what I'm working on. Let's stay at home. Wow, uh, we're like let's stay at home. I got vaccinated. Okay. I'm in, I'm so tired. I'm okay. Go to bed after this, you can follow me on Instagram at Gaia Rose River or Gaia River Rose, depending on what you want from me. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Nita underscore Tadani T H A D A N I. You can follow the Bitch Why podcast on Instagram or Twitter at bitch why podcast or you can email us at b.tch 
W-H-Y at gmail.com. Please leave a review and rate us on iTunes. All of the resources referenced will be in the show notes. Thank you to our editor, co-producer, and gay god, capital G, capital gay, G god, gay god, Cameron, and our graphic designer, Jillian. Have, have a good rest, bitches. Good rest, good night, good morrow, bitches. Bitches.